We continue on now as we have our message series, Making Disciples Like Jesus. And we remember that last week, Pastor John spoke to us and said that Jesus calls sinners to himself. I don't want to take a lot of time for an introduction to what I am going to speak about because time is of the essence because I have much scripture that I want to share. Not only has it shared with my own heart, but I want to share with you today. But I want you to see this morning that Jesus did the work of an evangelist. He was proclaiming God's word He was evangelizing sinners. We might want to know and understand better this word evangelist, evangelism. Bynes Complete Expository Dictionary says, A messenger of good denotes a preacher of the gospel. That is the one spreading the word. What does God's word say about an evangelist? Some quick passages. Acts 21.8 On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. One of those same seven that just back a little bit in Acts chapter 6 said that he was called out as a servant. One of those that we know of as how deacons came about, those that serve others. But we see in this passage, we don't get just one label. We aren't just an evangelist. We aren't just a deacon, a helper. God's disciples are many things all in one. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to, for building up the body of Christ. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. Paul would write to his young protege, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. My friends, this morning, as we gather together, as fellow seekers of God's word, I say to you that this is a great calling put on our lives. But I must say, it is more than that. It's not a great calling. It is the calling put on our lives. 2 Timothy 1, verse 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor, nor me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saves us and calls us to holy calling, Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Take note. Which he gives us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That is what we should do as evangelists, speaking his word. All of those things, preaching, coming alongside others, remembering at the, mid, uh, at the center of all that we do is God's word. Before I read our scripture today, which, if you know me, will be a challenge, that many verses, I want to continue and give you some prep of that thought by trying to explain to you we're going to be talking about a Samaritan woman from the area of Samaria. I want us to better understand that. There's other stories about Samaritans, the good Samaritan. What exactly should we understand about Samaritans and Samaria? This comes from the study that we're doing right now, which is in the book of Acts. It is found in that book. You might have already done this lesson, but I want to read this to help us better understand. This section begins with Philip going into Samaria. History tells us why this was significant. During the Israelite exile, the king of Assyria sent Gentiles to resettle in Samaria around 722 B.C. Eventually, the Jews were intermarrying with them, but the mixed authenticity of their children left them despised by both the Jews and the Gentiles. These Samaritans were so cut off from Jewish culture that they had, had their own version, the Pentateuch, their own temple on Mount Gerizim, and their own version of Israel's history. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus wrote that the animosity between Jews and Samaritans was so high at times that they battled against each other so intently that the Romans were called in to pacify and crucify many of the rebels. These are people that were scorned by everyone. I'd like us now to turn to our text, John 4, verses 1 through 42. John 4, verses 1 through 42. Follow along as I read. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus Wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, who, is, who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, 
You have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. You worship what you know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with, this, with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of, of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know, know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then come the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit to, for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I send you to reap that you which do not labor. Others labor and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, and he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. 
and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. At the very beginning of this passage, I want us to see two things that should encourage us greatly as we think about being evangelists, evangelizing sinners. And the first one is what this text says about baptism. And in verse 2, we see that it says, Jesus himself did not baptize. Well, the conclusion is that baptism is not the principal part of Christianity. Yes, it's ordained by God. Christ himself was baptized. We realize that it is an honorable ordinance of the church, and it is an outward expression of faith. We, have, as Baptists, think it's as, uh, um, important enough when there is a true understanding of what baptism baptism is, we have it in our name. That is not the subject of today's message, but baptism is important, but in this we see it was never meant to be exalted to the position that many churches put it to today. It does not work faith. It is not needed for salvation. But what we see here is the chief business of Christ's church is preaching the gospel. How should that encourage us? Paul himself would say, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Our encouragement should be this. We are not to make our responsibility more than it is. We as individuals, we are to preach the gospel. We are to preach the gospel and preach the gospel. The second point of encouragement that we see is what this says about the Lord's human nature. Verse 6. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey. As we heard last week from Pastor John, he said one of the things, if we truly understand the nature of this God that we serve, that he would leave the majesty and the glory that he had in heaven and would come to this earth and that he would humble himself to be a human, we would more love and understand the magnitude of the God that we serve. And I agree. But to put it into perspective, to have us better understand how one is true God and true man, I want to read from what uh, J.C. Ryle would write in his expository thoughts on the book of John. The servant of Christ, that's us, the servant of Christ should grasp firmly this great truth that there are two perfect and complete natures in one person whom, we, whom he serves. The Lord Jesus in whom the gospel bids us believe is without doubt Almighty God, equal to Father in all things, and able to save to the utmost all those that come unto God by him. 
But the same Jesus is not less certainly perfect man, unable to sympathize, this perfect man, able to sympathize with man in all his bodily sufferings and acquainted with, by experience with all that man's body has to endure. God calls angels and heavenly beings to do his perfect will to the utmost of their ability. God does the same to humans. We must be willing to do his will in us, all that we are as humans. But we should also realize he knows full well our physical limitations. This should encourage us that the God that we serve, the one that is the example of our evangelism, knows the limits of our humanity, our humanness. I want us to study three areas today in the scripture that speak to us about how we evangelize sinners. And that first one is how Jesus goes about identifying sin. We must understand that we see the tact and urgency of Jesus in dealing with this woman of sin. His tact and urgency. Jesus at the well would engage this woman in conversation about what? Water. Something as simple as that. But he was willing to speak to her. But he didn't leave the conversation just being that light. He quickly would turn the conversation and point out and, and have a, the occasion to have a spiritual conversation with her. He would not leave it at just a, a, a level that was uh, not addressing her herself. It led to a conversation about her very soul. And we have to understand, just like Jesus when he was talking to this woman, we have to realize that those that we are speaking to may be spiritually ignorant. They do not know that they are sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus could see that in this woman. And we should do the same for those that we may be speaking to. We must show a spirit that is courteous, but friendly, aggressive. I like those terms. Friendly, aggressive. We must pursue them, but we must be willing to be of a nature that is not threatening to them. We see that in the example that Jesus did to this point with this woman at the well. As we're identifying sin, Christ is ready to give mercies to careless sinners. He tells her uh, that if she would have asked, he was willing to give her something. Living water. We see that as truly the nature of who Jesus is. 
the willingness to, of Christ to receive sinners must impress on ourselves the very state of the lost. Jesus was the one that, who had said, ask and, ye will, ask and ye shall receive, seek and you will find. Jesus was the one that was taking the initiative, drawing this woman to herself, himself. Also, we see the priceless excellence of Christ's gifts when compared to the things of this world. Look what it says in the account, verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Did you pick up on the two things that Jesus is comparing? Water that is needed for a temporary state of life. Yes, it is very needed. We can't go without water that long. Or water that will last and give eternity. Which of those things are the most important? Unfortunately, many today look only as far as the temporal things of this world. My friends, we must understand that this life is but a vapor. We are here for so short of days and there is much more to life than just the needs of this life. We must look past that as Christ has done. We must also understand there is no heart satisfaction in anything that this world offers. There is only true understanding, love, and happiness when it is found in Christ himself. All of these treasures of this world will fade and will be left behind. How does Jesus go about identifying sin? The next one. By the absolute necessity and conviction of sin before a soul can be converted to God. Verses 16 through 19. To this point, it seems that this lady is unmoved by Jesus' conversation with him about this water. So he takes it up to the next notch. And what does he say to her? He talks about her husband. She says she does not have a husband. He said, that's true, but you've had five husbands. And the person that you have now that you live with is not your husband. We realize that Christ confronts her sin. She now feels her spiritual condition has been discovered. My friends, until sinners are brought to this point that they see that they are truly sinful beings, we have left them in the same state as we have found them. We must show sinners that they can see themselves as God sees them and they will continue or they will continue in their sin. And we know that sin is rebellion to God's perfect law. The uselessness of religion 
which only consists of formality and traditions. She comes back with the thought and confronts Jesus and says, but we just worship in different ways. You worship at one temple, we worship on a mountain. You use one book, we use another. We can hear that so many times today. So it must all be the same. But Jesus says, no, that that's not the truth. We must understand that past that, we, as this woman, will take religion and reduce it down to nothing more than traditions and mere ceremony. How many times are people impressed with a time of worship that might be nothing more than great pomp and circumstance, but has nothing at the center of it to do with who God truly is and to worship and honor him? That has nothing to do with true worship. Jesus says and tells us the heart is the principal thing in all that we do and how we approach God. God's word says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his statue, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is such a great piece of scripture. It has a great personal meaning for me that has brought me much joy in my life. And if you want to know about that, ask me sometime and I'll gladly tell you. But what we see in this scripture is, not only is it outward appearance that we sometimes will say, that doesn't meet what we think is important or they're not the same as us or are they really worth us spreading the gospel with? Outward appearance but it also speaks of what is in the heart. That's where God looks. He not only looks at those that are sinners apart from him, but he also looks at our heart and wonders and says to us, do you not find these people of importance? I do. He looks at our heart. How does Jesus go about identifying sin? Our last one is Christ's willingness to reveal himself to sinners. He is the hope for, for sinners. He is the Messiah. No man, no matter what a man or woman's past life has been, there is hope and freedom from sin. See, this Samaritan woman, the thief on the cross, and so many others that God's word tells us about, will receive the full and immediate pardon of Christ himself. We must remember that Christ is willing to receive and he is almighty to save. Okay, we've identified sin, but also don't miss the marvel of grace seen and given. Verses 27 through 30. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking 
with a woman, but now one said, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? We're talking about God's grace. It is evident in this encounter, so evident and out of place to the disciples that God's word says they marveled about it. But what was it? Was it just that in that cultural time, men did not make conversation with women in public? Was it that a Jew was speaking to a Samaritan? Was it the time of day? Was it all of these things? Why would Jesus, maybe knowing her past, that it was so obvious what kind of person she was outwardly, that he should not in public even take the time of day to speak to her? Could be all those things. But what the disciples, I believe, saw was the grace of the one that they followed. That it did not matter who she was or what she was. He had compassion and love for her. It was obvious. And they marveled. And God's word is full of times when there is marvel and astonishment. Are we surprised by that? Do we marvel sometimes on those that God calls to himself? If we do, does that show a lack of faith on our part? Are we saying that we serve a God that isn't big enough to draw any person that he chooses unto himself, no matter what their past or their state of sin is? I hope not. Personally, I hope not. By comparison, the time that Jesus was referred to as marveling was in Mark 6, when he was among his own people, his brothers and sisters, those that knew him from childhood. And what did they do? They rejected him. And God's word says he marveled at their unbelief. But also, how all-consuming is the influence of grace when it first comes into a believer's heart. And this is evident by the Samaritan woman herself because the next piece of scripture right after that says she left the water pot and went back to her people. Her mission for the day, what she needed to accomplish, what she needed for life, was that water pot of regular water. But now, she had seen the grace that was so great in this man that that was of no value to her. The only thing that she could think of was sharing that grace with her own people. That should amaze us. We should be in awe of the God that has that grace come to sinners. When I was working on this message and asking my scribe to help put these things that I call my notes together into a form that I can have, which is my wife, Denise, she said, 
You don't have any examples in this message. And I knew that this was a place I should have examples. Who was I going to choose of a life that was so cleaned up? John Newton, a slave trader that, that wrote Amazing Grace. And I thought, this is when each one of you should get up, give your testimony of how God came into your life and you were amazed by his grace. We don't have time. We got to get that seat at Big Boy. <laughs> but we should just be as amazed and, as John Newton himself and we should sing with him, I once was lost but am now found, was blind but now I see. A truly converted person is willing to do good to others. She left behind her water pot. She wanted to share with those that knew her the most. And she said to them, He told me everything about my life. I tend to think that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But I think it's effective as to what showing the burden of her heart, what she really meant. I think she was saying, even the innermost, the darkest part, my, my biggest problem in life, my sin, he knew about it. And he gave me his grace. And she was now wish, willing to be a missionary to her own people, to evangelize. Okay, we've seen the identity of sin. We've seen God's grace given. And lastly, the continuing need to spread the gospel message. The Samaritan woman started right away. She went to her own people. The people that she knew best. I said earlier that Jesus tried that also, and he was rejected by them. My friends, I think in our personal lives, we might find it the hardest to evangelize and to witness to those that we know and love the most. Because they know us so intimately. They see us when we're not at our best, when we haven't cleaned up for Sunday morning but that shouldn't deter us. Jesus used the example with the woman of water, but he wanted to use this same time to equip his disciples. And there he talked about food. They were so worried that their teacher, their master, had been properly fed. He said, don't worry about that. Don't worry about the food. It's the same as the water. He said, look at the harvest. He said, and don't look at it like you see it as somebody has to plant, then there's a time where you wait, and then maybe there will be a harvest, and then people will work on that. He says, see it as I see it. He said, I see white fields, plural, fields, ready for a harvest. All we have to do, my brothers, is go there. That's what he's telling his disciples. You must go witness. 
we must witness wherever and to whoever God puts in our path. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that the field was rich, full, and waiting. It is no less for us. But he talked about a reward. That reward might be on that last day. We might not know exactly what that is. But to a level that I think that we can safely know and understand the reward at a minimum, and it will be so great, it will be in no comparison to what little bit of labor we do for Christ, the reward to us will be so great that we will be able to spend an eternity in his presence. Is that not worth the labor that we do? And remember, it is not about our success, but it truly is about the quality and the quantity of the work that we do for Christ. Paul himself would write, in their varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers all of them in every one. We are working together, my friend. That's why one of the reasons that I wanted to pray for work that was being done in other than this building this morning because it's happening all around the world in different tribes and tongues and languages. And Jesus said, there's a place for all of us to be working together, alongside, never in competition, but doing what I have ordained you to do. And the beginning of this message really states that same thing. Go back to verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was, was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Jesus was not in competition with anybody else for a mission field. He knew there was plenty of work to be done. And the humble servant that Jesus is with his followers said, I will leave this mission field and go to another because there are still many that need to hear the truth of the gospel message. That is what Jesus is showing us in this account of the Samaritan woman at the well. Effective discipling, effective word ministry, evangelism. Effective discipling. Jesus showed compassion to a woman who was probably scorned, if not hated, on so many levels. He saw a sinner in need of living water, his great gift of grace. He confronted her on her sin and told her he was the savior of sinners, and she believed. Her life was forever changed to the point that she could not but tell others of the living water. May Jesus' example of love and truth, the eternal death that sin will bring, direct us and motivate us as we proclaim the gospel message. Let's pray.
Father, as our emphasis has not only been in our time of Sunday school, but in last week and these weeks to come, that we are doing your discipleship work. We pray, Lord, that we are again encouraged by the example that Christ himself was, how he would minister to sinners, that he would call them to himself, that he was willing to speak in truth, in love, the nature of their sin, how it separates us from the one true God. I pray, Lord, that it convicts us this day, that in our complacency, in our quickness to make excuses, Lord, that our heart is laid low, that it has spoken to me, Lord, that in so many ways, in so many opportunities, I have failed to share the truth of your gospel message. And I say that I am sorry. Lord, I ask that you enlighten us, that like your word says, your Holy Spirit will give us those words to minister to others. And that opportunity, that feel for harvest, like your word says, is great. Allow us to understand it better, knowing that all that we may see are going to spend an eternity someplace. And we pray, Lord, that it is the burden of our heart that they spend it in the presence of you. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.